Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. We just come before you worshiping you and thanking you for the freedom we have in this country to assemble together for this purpose of getting to know you better through a look at your word. What greater thing is there to do with our lives to redeem our time than to get to know your son better so that we might become more like him. And I can't think of a greater person to become more like than Jesus Christ who was absolutely perfect in every way. Father, I just thank you for every woman here. I pray that you would bless her this year, that she would be um, consistent in her ability to attend, that uh, she would make this a priority in her life because we know that we are commanded by you, Father, to study, to show ourselves approved, that we should study your word. This is your love letter to us, and may we definitely make it a priority in our lives. And, Father, now I just pray that you would use your servant. Help me to be hidden behind the works and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he alone might be lifted up and magnified and glorified as he alone deserves. For we do pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. On our general outline for this life of Christ study, and you all know we're studying the life of Christ, right? We're going chronologically through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're taking his life step by step, which uh, is taking us probably eight or nine years to do. This is our fourth year, isn't it? Fourth? Fourth year doing this. (laughs) But on our general outline, we're in section number five. Do you see that? We've already covered the preface for the life of Christ, the pre-incarnation of Christ, the preparation years of Christ. If you want to look back at those things, they were all in volume one of our Life of Christ book. Um, But now we have moved on. We're in the public ministry of Christ. And under that, you see that his three years of public ministry were very neatly divided into to three divisions. There was his first year of obscurity, where he basically was unknown, and um, uh, that was a lot of the information that we looked at in book one. That year of obscurity, we could kind of say, ended about the time he appointed his 12 men to be his apostles, and then spoke the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in book two of our life of Christ. When he spoke the Sermon on the Mount, he was coming out of his year of obscurity. People were knowing who he was. He was moving into his year of open popularity. Remember that year? Great masses of people followed him everywhere he went. He couldn't even get away from the people, could he? That was his great year. That was the time of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Spent a whole year in the Sermon on the Mount. If you missed that, pick up the book. That's an excellent study to really, really get convicted, right? We got convicted every single week. But the good thing about our conviction was we saw our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, it was also the time of his famous Mystery Kingdoms parables that we looked at in Matthew chapter 13, uh, very important parables. We talked about his ordination sermon when he sent his men out in pairs, two by two, and they went throughout all Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It was also the time of the feeding of the 5,000 who were really 15,000, who he fed with, what, five loaves and two, or was it the other way around, five loaves and two barley fish? No. (laughs) Hey, have you ever eaten a barley fish? (laughs) It was, uh, and that was really the climax of everything, was after he fed the 5,000 or the 15,000, they wanted to crown him king. I mean, that was the time of his, the, the apex of his popularity. But what happened shortly after that feeding? Does anybody remember John chapter 6? Oh, by the way, open your Bibles to John chapter 7. 
That's where we'll be in today. But John chapter 6, right after they had all wanted to force him to be their king, he gave the famous bread of life sermon. And as soon as he gave the bread of life sermon, what happened? Sort of, we could say, his year of opposition began. Although he was already being opposed from the time he first went into the temple and cleansed it by the religious rulers of Israel. But now many of his disciples, after hearing the Bread of Life sermon where he said, this, you know, this is my body and you need to eat, to eat my flesh and drink my blood, they mistook him, thought he was saying that they needed to become cannibals. And, and many of his di- disciples, we were told, in John six sixty six, turned and walked no for- more with him. So that third year of ministry is actually where we are in our life of Christ study as of this morning. It turned out to be one of increasing opposition as the religious leaders in particular went from being hostile toward him, having resentment toward him, to an open attack. You know, hoping above all else to find some fault in him for which they could publicly discredit him and then permanently dispose of him. We have already learned in our study that on numerous occasions they were plotting and planning how they could kill him. And he knew it, didn't he? Remember when he told his men that he must suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers? He knew it. It was no surprise to him. So at at the point we find ourselves in the Lord's life now, he had walked primarily, ministered primarily in the northern province of Israel called Galilee. And he had been up there for about three years. Now, he made periodic trips down to Jerusalem, to to, uh, Jerusalem in Judea, of course, to celebrate the various feast days. He made a trip over to Gadara to to heal a demoniac. Remember, he took a trip over to Tyre um, Tyre and Sidon where he uh, met the Syrophoenician woman with great faith. He also made a trip through Decapolis, we know. But primarily, his time has been spent in the northern province of Galilee, which was his own hometown province. And he had repeatedly been presenting himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. But now the time, we closed up our year in May by learning that the time had come for him to leave Galilee. Um, By and large, he had been rejected there, hadn't he? The people had wanted to crown him an earthly king so that he would deliver them from their hated oppressors, the Romans. But they really, for the most part, they misunderstood who he was as their spiritual deliverer, their spiritual king. They wanted him as a physical king. They did not want him as their lord and savior. Even his hometown people of Nazareth rejected him. Very sad, wasn't it? On two occasions, he is the God of the second chance. He gave them two opportunities, and on both occasions, they rejected him. Most of his one-time disciples had turned from him and walked no more with him. We already discussed that in John six sixty-six. The religious rulers, what had they concluded? Remember? Even after he healed a blind, dumb, deaf man or something like that, and they concluded that he did his works in the power of Satan or Beelzebub. That was in Matthew twelve twenty four. That was their great conclusion. He had given such Galilean cities as Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, unprecedented opportunities to come to him in saving faith. They had seen more miracles and heard more of his words than any other people on planet Earth. 
There he was, the Son of God, in their very midst, in their presence. And yet they, they failed to come to know him, most of them. Now, there were, there were exceptions. And most of the exceptions we saw, surprisingly, came from what people? Samaritans and Gentiles. They were far more receptive to receiving Christ as Savior than the Jews. Isn't that sad? But he knew that. None of that was a surprise to him. He knew that would happen. He knew he would come unto his own and his own would receive him not. But most of the people of Galilee had merely wanted to personally benefit from his miracles. They enjoyed listening to his messages because he had a very unique way of teaching. He had, they liked his delivery. You know, he didn't just quote from rabbis. He wasn't very dull and boring. And things he said were shocking and surprising. They liked his delivery. They just didn't like his demands. They didn't like his message. You know, part of his message, remember, in the Sermon on the Mount was, be ye perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Whoa. How, how in the world can we do that? So they, they liked his delivery, but not his demands. So one of our last lessons last time was called On the Road to Rejection. That was lesson 85 in your books. We learned that he was even spurned by his own siblings. Remember, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mary is not, was not a perpetual virgin. She had other children. Jesus, of course, was uh, born when she was a virgin, but then she went on to have at least four sons, and we know that because their names are given to us in the Scripture, aren't they? We saw that last year. What were their names? Anybody remember? Anybody want to guess? James. And uh, I want to do it in order. James and Joseph. Joseph was named for the father, Joseph. And then there was Simon. He was the only one without a J, because Jesus, James, Joseph, Simon, where did that come from? <laughs> and then Jude. And two of his bro- all of his brothers did not believe in him until after the resurrection, but we know that they did. After the resurrection, they believed in him. And two of them wrote books in our um, New Testament, didn't they? Quite a change in their lives. And then he also had at least two sisters. Because the scripture said sisters, plural, so we know he had at least two sisters. But his, his brothers in John 7, if you want to review, look at John 7, verses 1 to 10. They spurned him. They uh, had the world's perspective on things. They said to him, if thou do these things, if, which means they didn't really believe that he was who he claimed to be and that he could do what he was doing. But if thou do these things, show thyself to the world. They wanted Jesus, you know, they had the world's perspective. They had Satan's perspective. They, um, at this point, they wanted Jesus to do something spectacular so that he would get a great following. And this was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll be talking about that feast this morning. The Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. So their plan was, Jesus, you need to stop spending your time, wasting your time up here in Galilee with the nobodies of this world, and you need to get down there into Jerusalem where the big mucky mucks are. And if you're going to, if you really are who you say you are, they're the ones that need to make that determination. And this is the great time of year to go because the Feast of Tabernacles was attended by masses of people, Jewish people from all over, that were scattered all over. They had to come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, so they said this would be a great platform for you. And uh, you need to show yourself, perform your miracles there. But beneath all of this brotherly advice was their unbelief, because look at verse 5, John 7, 5, it says, For neither did his brethren, what? 
believe in him. They did not believe in him. And as I said, this was no surprise to the Lord. He knew not only that his own people would reject him, that he would come to his brethren, the Jews, and they would reject him because it does say he came unto his own and his own knew him not. But it also says that he knew his brothers would, his own family would reject him. In Nazareth, remember it says, what, a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. Um, But in Psalm, this was one of the interesting verses we looked at last year. Remember Psalm 69, 8, where where it's a messianic psalm. Whenever I say messianic, that means it was understood by the Jewish people and the writers of the Old Testament that this was something that was speaking of the coming Messiah. And this is a messianic psalm. Jews understand that. And it says here, The Lord speaking through the pen of King David, I am become a stranger unto my brethren, the Jews. Jesus knew he would be a stranger to his own people, the Jews. And it went on to say, and an alien unto my mother's children. And we talked about how fascinating that is. What did his brothers think of him? He's an alien. They even thought at one time that he was just beside himself. He was he was kind of lunatic, they thought. You know, claiming to be the son of God. But it's so interesting that it said my mother's children, because if it had said my father's children, then Jesus would not have been born. That would be disproof for the fact that Jesus was born of God, the Holy Spirit. He was an alien to his mother's children. You see, his brothers and sisters were not his father's children. His father was God the father. Their father was Joseph the carpenter. Very important scripture. If that word mother had been father... We could forget about the virgin birth. But, of course, every word in Scripture is perfect, isn't it? All right. Well, our last lesson was entitled Debate in the Midst of the Feast. John 7-2, if you look at John 7-2, it says that the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. It calls it the the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles. It started out as the Lord's Feast, but the Jews had changed so many things that it's interesting that the Holy Spirit inspired John to say it was the Jews' Feast now. They had just about taken the Lord out of it. But this feast was at hand, and Jesus was going to attend this feast. He had to because it was the law that all male Jews attend three feasts during the year, and this was one of them. So he would attend it, but he wouldn't do it the way his brothers wanted him to do. They wanted him to go in in great pomp and ceremony and, um, you know, with a caravan and people of people. But he didn't, he would not do it that way. And we discussed all the reasons. I can't get into all that. We'll never get to our lesson today. But uh, he would go secretly and he would go, he would arrive at the feast in the midst of the feast. So the days of his Galilean ministry are over. They didn't know that. But he would never be returning to Galilee again. That was a sad day for Galilee, wasn't it? The Son of God left Galilee and he would never return. We're only about six months short of the cross in our study, even though we have four or five years to go. (laughs) We're only about six months short. So the upcoming Feast of Tabernacles signified an important turning point in the Lord's ministry. Um, it was the beginning of his road to rejection. Of course, we know he was born to die, so essentially we could say his road to rejection was his entire life. But this specifically is the time when he got on that road to go down to Jerusalem. It tells us in Luke 9.51, we also looked at that scripture last year, but when we closed that the time when he would be received up 
was approaching, and that speaks of what? His crucifixion, when he would be received up, and also, yes, his resurrection, his ascension. Um, So that time was approaching, so he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Even knowing what awaited him there, he set his face like flint. He was on the road to rejection. Remember, on the way, he encountered three would-be disciples. Remember those guys? They said, you know, Lord, I'll follow you. But first, (laughs) let me go bury my dad and let me do all these other things. So he met those guys on the way. And then he was also spurned by a city of Samaritans, if you remember that. But it was time for the Lord to turn his face toward the conflict, toward the opposition, and the full rejection of the religious authorities, which would find its culmination, of course, in his death. So he arrived in Jerusalem in the midst of the feast. Now, the feast lasted for seven days. He came in the middle of it. So around the third day, he arrived in Jerusalem, knowing that the religious rulers were already turning the city upside down looking for him. Remember, they said, where is he? They went among the people saying, where is he? And we looked at the word he, meaning that deceiver. Where is that deceiver? They were out to find him, and it was not to do him good. He knew they were looking for him and wanted to destroy him, but of course, he did not have a fear of man. So when he did arrive in Jerusalem, where do you think he went? Straight to the temple. He did not fear any man. Now, as I said, the Feast of Tabernacles is a seven-day feast. It is the final of seven feasts. Now, here's where you may want to be looking at this little sheet that we passed out to you. It's the final of seven feasts of the Lord. It is also known as the Feast of Booths, or in um, Hebrew it would be called the Feast of Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, because Sukkoth, or Sukkah, I should say, is the Hebrew word for booths. It's known elsewhere in Scripture as the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Harvest. It's kind of like a Thanksgiving festival. I guess we could compare it to our Thanksgiving. It is the most prominent feast of the seven feasts given by God to Israel because it is mentioned more in the Scripture than any of the other six feasts. It was a week-long celebration that came at the end of the fall harvest. You know, after all the crops had been gathered in and harvested, it occurred, according to Leviticus, it was to occur on the 15th day of the seventh month. What does seven in Scripture refer to? We've seen this, those of you in the study, over and over again. Seven is a biblical number to symbolize perfection, completion. This this completes, completes the feasts. Of Israel, this was the. Uh, it, it would occur on our calendar. You know, the Jewish calendar is different from our calendar because they're based on the the, the moon, and we're based on other things, sun, I guess. Um, but their calendar is different. So this feast would ha- occur at the end of Oct- uh, September and early October. This year, I went ahead and looked at the calendar. It happens this week, so isn't that appropriate? We're studying it, and they will celebrate it. No, I'm sorry. That's the Feast of Trumpets happens this week. The Feast of Tabernacles happens um, a little bit after that. Anyway, the Feast of Trumpets is significant, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But that happens on Thursday. Is Thursday the 13th? 
Feast of Trumpets, and then the Yom Kippur and Tabernacles are all three sort of in a row, but they all occur in the fall of the year. This was, um, the people were, they had a, a threefold reason for celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. We could call it a threefold joy. One was celebrating God's past goodness and provision during their wilderness journey. You know, when Israel was in the wilderness, wandering around for 40 years, and um, God provided for them over and over again, didn't he? And they, they actually slept in booths. So this is sort of a commemoration of that. They also celebrated and were joyful about his present goodness. You know, they had just brought in the harvest, the crops, so they were thanking him for his goodness and his provision with the completion of the harvest. And they were also praising him for his future goodness and provision when the Messiah would come and he would set up his messianic kingdom and he would tabernacle with them. The word booth speaks of a tabernacle. They were celebrating the time when, when uh, the Messiah would come and, and dwell among them. It, so it was to be a commemoration of the time when God had preserved Israel after he had bought, brought her out of bondage, her bondage to Egypt. She had lived for 40 years in the wilderness in, in these makeshift kind of booths that were made out of four different types of trees. I won't get into all of that, but you can read about it in Leviticus 23, verses 40 to 44. For seven days of the feast, people flocked in great numbers to Jerusalem. Um, and they, they would, some of them even, we talked about this, they'd come early in order to set up their booths. Some of them, it's kind of like some of you, plan way ahead for Christmas. How many of you have actually started buying some gifts for Christmas? I haven't, but... Some of you are real planners. Well, some of these people would start planning way ahead of time for when they would go to Jerusalem and set up their booths. And there's regulations. The the rabbis had all kinds of requirements. The booth could only be 30 feet um, wide. I mean, not 30 feet, 4 feet wide, 4 feet long, which isn't really very big, is it? And no higher than 30 feet. But people would come, they'd build their booths everywhere they could find a spot, all around the walls of the city. Nowadays, they still do this in Israel, the Feast of Booths. And they put their booths where, you know, in their, on their driveways and on their rooftops and wherever they can build a booth. And they would have to build them out of these four different kinds of branches. And um, they had to eat their meals in them. They were supposed to, they were required. If you ate all of your meals, you were holier than people who didn't eat all their meals in their booth. And if you were really holy, you would spend the night in your booth. But four feet by four feet, that's not very big. And they would um, decorate them instead of like with Christmas lights and stuff. They would decorate them like we do at Thanksgiving with a cornucopia. They would decorate them with the fruit. Like they'd have grapes hanging from the, the rooftops. And, and it was just a really, they said it was the most joyous festival of all the feasts of the Lord all seven of them, this was the most joyous. I read some rabbis said that no one in this life ever experiences joy unless they have attended the Feast of Tabernacles in Israel. You know, I thought that sounded like fun. Don't you think that sounds like fun, that we would all go somewhere and set up our little booths and just fellowship? You know, you could go next door. Oh, and, and there was only supposed to be three sides of a booth. So the open, the, the front was open, so you could have fellowship with everybody. And the other thing is the, the, the branches on the top weren't supposed to be, they were supposed to be scattered so you could look through and see the, the sky 
Um, so they could see, they could look up at night and see the stars of the sky through the branches. I mean, it sounds like so much fun. I thought, oh, I just hate that we miss out on that. But you know what? We're not going to miss out on it. Do you know that in the millennial kingdom, there are two feasts that we will be celebrating? Only two, the first and the last. We will be celebrating the Passover in remembrance of what Christ did for us when he died as the Passover lamb. And we will also all be celebrating the Feast of Booths. And the greatest news of all is that Jesus Christ will be tabernacling there with us. Oh, that that gets me excited. So we're not going to miss out on that feast. We'll all be able to participate in. There were three feasts that all Jewish males were required to attend. One was the Passover. One was the Feast of Weeks, which was what we call um, Pentecost. And the last one was the Feast of Booths. Now, in both biblical and rabbinical teaching, when I say rabbinical teaching, that means what the Jewish rabbis taught. In both the Bible and what the rabbis taught, the Feast of Tabernacle, it is agreed, is a picture in type of the days of the Messiah. It speaks of the future raising up of the tabernacle of David that has fallen. You know, the tabernacle of David speaks of the house of David, or the uh, kingly line of David. Is there a king in Israel today that came from the line of David? No, it is fallen. You can read about that in Amos 9.11. The uh, Feast of Tabernacles speaks of the time when the Messiah will again sit on the throne of David and he will rule over this world, not only as king of Israel, but also as king of kings and lord of lords. He will rule with a rod of iron and Israel will at long last dwell in safety. And what is that talking about? It's talking about the time of the messianic kingdom, the 1,000 year millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ here physically upon earth. Furthermore, the booths that the, the Jewish people would build at, during this holiday spoke um, were not just to remember those temporary shelters that they lived in when they were wandering in the desert, but um, God was also in the booth, in the sukkah, the, sukkah, the uh, tabernacle. God was referring to the clouds of glory, the sukkah of God, in other words, that overshadowed Israel when she was wandering in the desert. Remember how he led her, how he guided her through the wilderness, and how he protected her? What was it through or by? Pillar, a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. And remember that pillar would rest over the tabernacle that they built. The tabernacle was the pre-temple. Out in the wilderness, they would carry it with them. And the pillar of cloud would rest over the Holy of Holies on the tabernacle. And later, that same cloud filled the temple in Israel. And that same glory, sadly, gradually departed from the temple in the days of Ezekiel. He actually watched the glory of God leave the temple. And that glory is referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory is speaking of God tabernacling or God dwelling with man. God actually dwelt with Israel at the time of her wandering. So the prophetic message of the Feast of Tabernacles is that the Messianic age will be a time when the Shekinah glory of God, representing, of course, the presence of God, 
will once again dwell with man. You know, during the millennial kingdom, God will dwell with us during that whole kingdom. And it is also well worth mentioning that the Feast of Tabernacles is referred to repeatedly in the New Testament as proof of the messianic credentials of who? Who's the Messiah? Jesus Christ. They're proof of his, that he is the Messiah. It says right away in John 1, 14. And the word, referring to Jesus Christ, was made flesh and what? Dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He was made flesh and he tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. What glory? His glory as of the only begotten Son of God. The Shekinah glory. Jesus Christ was the Shekinah glory of God tabernacling with men for 33 years. Now, they didn't see it because that glory was veiled, wasn't it? Except on one occasion we looked at last year when, just for a little bit, he unveiled that glory and let three of his disciples see it up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Greek word used for dwelt means to dwell as in a tabernacle or a tent, to abide in a temporary shelter. That's exactly what Jesus did. He abided in a temporary shelter, a little sukkah, a booth, for a little while, for 33 years. In him, the presence of God literally tabernacled among us. Well, now we get to our study today. That was just introduction. You see why we're in trouble? All right, our study last time had ended with the Lord God incarnate. Because in this study, we believe with all of our hearts that Jesus Christ is the second person of the triune Godhead, that he is the eternal Son of God. So our study had ended, verse 31, we looked at 11 through 31 of John chapter 7, but with God incarnate, the tabernacle of God the temporary sukkah of God, the temporary shelter or booth of God, standing right there in the temple of God. You know, the temp- he was also the temple of God, right? He was the tabernacle of God. He was the temple of God. And he even said on one occasion, destroy this temple, his own body, and in three days I'll raise it up. The temple there, Herod's temple, was built to honor him. He's standing in the middle of the place that was built to honor him, and to picture him. Everything in the Old Testament is a picture of Christ. Think like children and think like coloring books. Everything's a picture. And the New Testament fills in the color. It's all a picture of Christ. So there he is. The tabernacle, the booth of God, standing in the temple of God, in the midst of of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is all about him. We'll talk about how they had a a water-pouring ceremony that pictured him because he is the living water. There was a light ceremony, a light where they lit the menorah in the center of the temple, and the light was a picture of him, and he'll even tell us that in John chapter 8, that he is the light of the world. All of it pictured him. All the sacrifices that they offered on the altar there in the temple were nothing but pictures of him, who would be the once-for-all sacrifice. Well, we closed with him. I get so excited about this, and I get so mad at the same time, because there he is, standing in the the midst of the place built to worship him, picture him, and he's raising his voice, declaring to the one people in all the world who should have known him, they being the Jews, he's shouting at them that they didn't even know who he was because... Why? 
They didn't even know the one who sent him. They didn't even know God. Remember in the Bread of Life sermon how many times he said he came down from heaven, his father sent him? He said, you don't even know the one who sent me. And that additional claim to deity, that he came from God, he said it one more time, because it's true. He only speaks the truth. But that additional claim to deity, along with this bold proclamation that they who prided themselves so much on knowing God did not even know him one single bit, all of that enraged the religious leaders, as you can imagine. They were already enraged. They already wanted to find him and kill him. But when he said that, they were really mad. And so we are told that they tried to lay hands on him in order to do him harm. Yet, in another very subtle way that we might miss if we don't really look at it, he again proved his deity by the fact that they couldn't do anything. Look at verse 30. They could not lay hands on him. They couldn't touch him. Because why? His hour had not yet come. He was on a divine timetable. You know what day he had to die? Look at your little feast days. He was not going to die on the Feast of Tabernacles. He was going to be the Passover lamb. He had to die and would die exactly on schedule on the day of the Passover feast. Well, when the Pharisees and the chief priests saw that many of the people believed in him, I think that's in verse 31, is it? John 7, 31. Many of the people believed on him. And they said, when Christ cometh, when the anointed one comes, when the Messiah comes, will he be able to do more miracles than these which this man hath done? I mean, who in the world could do more miracles than Jesus Christ had done? No one. No one ever has. No one ever will. So some of the people were believing on him. And when the Jews saw that, when I say Jews, I'm usually referring to the religious leaders, okay? When the Jews heard this, they... um, they, they were really determined to get him. So where we come to our study this morning is that they sent the temple guard out to arrest him. So let's begin by looking this morning, first part of our outline, and keep this at hand. We'll look at it a little bit more. But um, look now with me at the dispatched officers, first part of our outline. We're going to be reading verses 32 to 36 of John chapter 7. Everybody have a Bible? Okay. All right, verse 32. It says, The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. Look at verse 31 I just talked about, and that's what they were, what they were saying. Could the Christ do more miracles than this man that upset the Pharisees? And it says, And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. There he says it again, doesn't he? God sent him. Verse 34, ye shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, whither will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, ye shall seek me and shall not find me. And whither I am, thither ye cannot come. All right, we'll stop right there. The Pharisees did not like the fact that the people were murmuring such things about Jesus. They wanted to discredit him over and over again, didn't they? 
Next week, we'll see they try to discredit him again by bringing to him an adulterous woman. Don't miss next week, Lord willing. That's what we'll be discussing is the adulterous woman brought to Jesus. They're always trying to discredit him, and he has this wonderful way of always turning the tables, and who gets discredited? They do. They always walk away with their tail tucked between their legs. <laughs> they can never they can never beat Jesus. Of course, he's, he's wisdom incarnate. But uh, so even though they normally could not stand the chief priests, you know, the Pharisees and the chief priests were always at odds with one another. Yet in this occasion, their joint hatred and fear, really, of Jesus's popularity with the people caused them to join forces. And so together they call out the temple guard. Now, the temple guard were made up from men of the tribe of Levi, and they were the ones who made sure that there was law and order in around the temple precinct. Now, you know, on the Feast of Tabernacles, there was some, like, millions of people, maybe three million people there in Jerusalem. So somebody needed to be keeping law and order, and that was the job of the temple guard. So they call out the temple guard to come and arrest Jesus. Now, it doesn't tell us how long it took for the temple guard to get to Jesus, probably not very long at all, because where is he? In the temple. So some, you know, they're probably nearby. Didn't, probably didn't take them very long to get there, but even when they did arrive, was he phased by it? Not one single bit. He knew that no man could lay hands on him without his father's permission and until it was the appointed time. So even knowing that the temple police had di been dispatched to arrest him, he very calmly just says to the Jews there, the Pharisees and the chief priests, he says, yet a little while am I with you, and we know it'll be around six months. And then he says, and then I go. Not you're going to send me, but I'm going to go unto him that sent me. You know, nobody took his life, did they? He gave it of his own free will. He said, I go unto him that sent me. And then he says, ye shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. You see, Jesus knew that his time on earth was getting short. He knew that he had only, only had until the feast of, of Passover, some six months before he would, would be crucified and um, go back to his father in heaven. He knew he had yet a little while before he would return to God. So what he's saying here essentially is, I know my presence here really irritates you, um, but I'll only be, you only have to put up with me for a little while longer. I'll only be here a little bit more, um, and then you won't see me ever again. You won't see, you'll seek for me, but you'll, you won't see me, because where I'm going, you will not be able to go. Oof, those are, those are harsh words, aren't they? But, oh, not but yet. <laughs> he was really giving them a twofold prophecy here. He was saying, this was a twofold prediction. He was saying that they would seek him, but they wouldn't find him. That's the first one. And then the second prophecy was that where he was going, they wouldn't be able to come. And you know, this was literally fulfilled when they, uh, after he was crucified and buried in the tomb. Do you not think that the Jews, especially the Pharisees and the chief priests, sought for his body? Oh, yes. If there was one way they could have ever disproved that his resurrection, it would have been to bring forth his body. 
I am sure they turned Jerusalem and the outlying area upside down looking for his body. He said, you'll seek me, but you won't find me. So it was not only fulfilled literally, but also spiritually. Because if there's one people who keeps seeking for the Messiah to come, who is it? The Jews. And yet, they're, they're just, they've been spiritually blinded. They can't find him. Which would you rather hear? Think about this. I thought of this contrast. You know what? This is what he says to the Jews who hate him, the religious rulers. I want to kill him and will eventually be successful in killing him. But you know what he said later on to his own men on the very night of his arrest when he was in the upper room, the great comfort chapter of the Bible. If you ever want comfort for your troubled soul, you know where you go? John chapter 14 is the comfort chapter of the Bible where he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Um, in my father's house are um, many mansions. <laughs> and um, Oh, I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> yeah, and, and I go, my father's house has many mansions, and I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, which would you rather hear? Would you rather hear the Lord say, where, um, where I'm going, ye cannot come? Or would you like him to say, where I am, there ye shall be also? You know, the decision is up to you. You can make that choice. You can choose to believe in him, and then you will know that you will be with him. Um, all right, so anyway, this prophecy was actually fulfilled. And by the way, Proverbs 1, 28 to 31 speaks of Israel's blindness that she's in now. Now, one day Israel will be saved, but that won't be until Jesus comes out from the Holy of Holies um, on the Day of Atonement. And she finally recognizes him. But it says in Proverbs, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They're seeking, and they're, at least the Orthodox, most of the Jewish people have given up looking for him. Did you know that? They just become totally secular. Always, the Messiah is never going to come. But the Orthodox, they just keep seeking for him. But he says, I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Why? Here he gives the reason. For that, that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not have my counsel. They wouldn't have his counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. So he said to them, in essence, you cannot come to me. You know why? Because you will not come to me. That's what it always boils down to. You can't come to me because you choose not to come to me. Those who don't want to be where Christ is in this world here are unfit to be where he is in the world to come. So, and you know, that's true today, too. The Spirit of God will yet be in this world a little while. And I think we're getting very close to the end. Very, very close. The, the Spirit of God is only going to be, this is the age of grace, just for a little while, and then he too is going to go back unto the one who sent him, who was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of um, Weeks. And those who seek him after that time will seek him in vain. And that's why the scripture says that what? Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off for tomorrow. If you're not sure that you're saved, today is the day of salvation. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. You don't know that you might not be killed on the way home in a car accident. I pray that you won't be, but we don't know that. 
Isaiah 55 says, uh, 55, 6 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. You know what? He's near right now because he's knocking at the heart, the door of your heart. If you haven't asked him in, he's doing that right now, saying, Let me in while, while it's yet the day of salvation. Well, what do you, how do you think the, the Jews responded to this very serious warning of the Lord Jesus? Sarcastically. They answered him sarcastically, and we just read it, but this is just, they said, whither will he go that we cannot find him? They're being very sarcastic there. And this just gives us another amazing insight into the, the depth of their spiritual depravity. They he wouldn't go among the Gentiles like he does. The Gentiles, remember the disdain that they have for Gentiles? Even for their own common Jewish people who lived among the Gentiles? They said, oh, is he going to go among the, the dispersed of the Gentiles? That means those low-class Jews like up in Galilee or some of those over in Gadara or the Decapolis who live among the Gentiles? Is he going to go sit with the Gentiles and teach them? Well, you know what? Their sarcasm was actually, it actually came filled, fulfilled, didn't it? He could have answered them by saying, yes, you got that right. That is exactly where I'm going to be going. When Israel rejects me, I will go unto the Gentiles through his ambassadors like Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. And the church today we know is made up primarily of Gentiles now. There are exceptions, and I praise the Lord for every Jewish person who comes to know his true Lord and Savior, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at the drinking offer, and for that we look at verses 37 to 39. We've talked about dispatched officers, and now here we have the drinking offer. In verse 37 it says, In the last day, now that is speaking of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And they called it that great day of the feast, because there was more joy on that last day than any other day. It was called Hoshana Rabbah, the great day of the feast. It says, on that last day, Jesus stood, and where do you think he probably was? He was probably in the temple, um, the inner court of the temple. It says, Jesus, or the outer court, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Oh no, I should read verse 39. It says, but this spake he of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Of course, the Holy Spirit wasn't given until Jesus ascended into heaven and then, you know, um, sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You know, people all over the world celebrate holidays. Did you know that literally around the world there are thousands of holidays that take place? I know when I was in South America, they were celebrating holidays I'd never heard of. People come here and they don't know what the 4th of July is. And, you know, there's just different holidays every, some, everywhere. Some are in memory of significant political events. 
such as the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Some are in memory of the birth dates of important people like George Washington's birthday or Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Uh, some are to, re- to observe religious beliefs, obviously. Many of them around the world are for religious beliefs. Some are even for superstitious beliefs. But the eternal God instituted only seven holy days, holidays. That comes from the word holy days, holidays. Uh, And that's what you have here on your paper is the seven holidays or holy days that were given by God. Now, any other holiday can never, ever be compared to the importance of these seven feast days or holidays. And they are um, discussed throughout the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are given to us in chronological order in Leviticus 23. And you can go home and read Leviticus 23, and you'll see all seven of these holidays laid out for us. These holidays are known as the Feasts of the Lord. And that expression tells us they're God's holidays. They belong to him in contrast to man's holidays. Like, you know, celebrating... um, Martin Luther King Day or George Washington's birthday. Those are men's holidays, but these, in contrast, are God's holidays. The Hebrew word translated feasts means appointed times. These, um, the, the, the sequence and the timing of each of these feasts has been carefully orchestrated by who? God himself. These just aren't times, you know, for people to have joy. They were, they were predetermined and orchestrated and planned by God. Each one of them is a part of a comprehensive whole. Again, remember, pictures. These seven feasts are pictures to us. Collectively, they tell us a story. And I think as Gentiles, most of us Gentiles, right, we don't understand the significance of the feast days that were given to Israel. But they're also very, very significant to us because they tell us a story. They, um, they, they are times of meeting, appointed times of meeting between God and man for holy purposes. Now, although these feasts of the Lord were given to Israel, to the Hebrew nation, because they depict the entire redemptive career of the Messiah himself, they're also for us. They're also for the church. They're not just for Israel. They're very significant to us. These feasts typify or picture the sequence the timing and the significance of the major events of the Lord Jesus Christ's redemptive career. And I think you, if you've studied your page, you've already seen that. They begin at Calvary when Jesus voluntarily gave himself for the sins of the world. What day did he give himself for the sins of the world? On the Feast of Passover. Because all those lambs, starting with when Israel... Um, killed a lamb and put the blood on the lentils of the doorpost when they were um, departing from Egypt. All of those lambs ever slaughtered pictured him, the Lamb of God, which would come and take away the sins of the world. So it was predestined from time, eternal time past, that he would die, he would come and die on the Passover. So they begin on the Passover and they climax, they end with the Feast of Tabernacles, which will be the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom. 
the time of the Lord's second coming, when he will actually tabernacle with man. He will dwell with man during the kingdom. Um, And then we'll go into the eternal state, and he'll forever tabernacle with us. And you can read about that in Revelation 21. But anyway, you don't have to twist the scripture. You don't have to allegorize the scripture. You don't have to manipulate the scripture in order to make these feasts of Israel conform to specific events in Jesus Christ's life. And I don't know how long it took the the church to see this, probably not very long, because he died on the Passover, and then on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was when he was laying, you know, in the tomb, that that feast pictures his sinless body lying in the tomb. It, It speaks of the believers. Well, the first one is the plan of salvation, all right? Passover, the plan of salvation. That Jesus Christ came to shed His blood, because without the remission of blood, there is—I no, mean, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Second one speaks of um, the fact that you and I can be sanctified; that we can get the leaven out of our lives as well, the evil out of our lives. And the third one—I don't have time to develop all this, but I hope you'll study it on your own because it's fascinating. But the third one was um, His resurrection, the Feast of First Fruits. When Jesus, and it was the third day after the Passover, on the third day was the Feast of uh, First Fruits. Jesus is the first fruit of the res- resurrection. That's a promise of your security because he rose. We who believe in him will also rise one day. He was the first fruit. We're going to be the next fruit, okay? And that occurred exactly on the day of resurrection. Not a coincidence. All planned. And then guess what happened on the 50th day? The feast of, that's when the Jews would celebrate the feast of weeks, or what they call Shavuot. And that was when they would, they'd do all kinds of things, but one of the basic things they would do would be bake two loaves of bread with leaven. And the high priest would take those two loaves together and wave them before the Lord in a single offering. You know what happened on the day of Pentecost? The feast of um, Weeks, the church was born. You know what the church consists of? Two loaves, both with leaven. Would you say the church doesn't have sin in it? Oh, yeah, we're all sinners. Two loaves, one representing the Jew and one representing the Gentile. Because, see, the church has broken down the middle wall of partition. Now we're one body, Jew and Gentile. It was two loaves, but they were presented as one offering. And the Feast of Weeks occur. I mean, in the Lord's life, that was the day of, of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. Now, you know what? The, the biggest span of time between any of these holidays occurs between the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Trumpets. Because the first three feasts are already, they're, they're a done deal. They've already occurred. They all happen in the spring of the year. But from the Feast of Pentecost until the Feast of Trumpets, there's this big span of time. And you know what that represents? The church age. That's where you and I are living. We're living between the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Trumpets. But you know when the Feast of Trumpets will occur? And we'll be out of here? The Feast of Trumpets is going to be the rapture of the church. You know, we're going to hear the, the voice of the archangel and the, the blast of the trumpet, and we're out of here. You know, I, they always say you don't know when the, when the rapture is going to occur, but I can guarantee you 
that the feast of, that the rapture is going to occur on the very day that they celebrate the feast of trumpets. I I would really wager. I'm not supposed to bet, but ah, and you know when the feast of trumpets is this year? I just told you before. It's on Thursday. So if this is the year of the rapture, everybody get ready Thursday. <laughs> Oh, it's got to it's got to occur on the feast of trumpets, and then well, I I I just can't develop the rest of this. But anyway, it is so exciting. I get so excited about this. If you have never studied the feast of the Lord, you need to. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. That's when finally all Israel is going to be saved. The Feast of Tabernacles. We've already talked about that. It's going to be the whole millennial kingdom when the when we will actually dwell with the Lord. All right. Oh boy. So. Um, the drinking offer, that's where I was, right? John tells us about the events now of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is called Rosh Hashanah, Rabbah, or the great day of the feast. And during that day, when there was still a temple in Jerusalem, it became the custom of the people to uh, have this libation of water or a water sacrifice uh, offering. I should say water offering. And this was done every morning of the seven days of the feast. Following the regular morning sacrifice, what would happen is uh, the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, which was fed by a living spring, not stagnant water, not a cistern, living water, came from the spring of Gihon. He'd go down to the pool of Siloam every morning of the feast, and in a very elaborate ceremony with lots of people with him, he would withdraw water from the pool of Siloam into a golden pitcher. And then he would, again, with a lot of pomp and ceremony, he would return to the Temple Mount. He would actually return going through the southern gate, which came to be known the Water Gate, because he would carry the water, and to the accompanying sound of many silver trumpets playing and lots of shouts of joy from all the people, he and the Levitical priests would be singing and chanting the words, Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. The high priest um, would, would go up the steps of the great stone altar while... Oh, I forgot to add this. All the, there's so much ceremony, but the other priests would march around the altar one time, except for on the great day of the feast, which is when Jesus spoke these words, if any man thirst, let him come unto me, the priests would march around the altar seven times. So after they marched around the altar seven times, the high priest took his golden pitcher of water from the living pool of Siloam water, he'd march up and then he would pour the water onto the altar. At the same time, he would pour with his other hand a wine offering. And the water in the wine, and wine in the scripture symbolizes what? Joy. He would pour the water and the wine onto the altar and then it would um, collect in these large silver containers. And then on, on the last, the great day of the feast, Once he had done this, the Levitical choir would start to sing from Psalm 118.25 these words, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Now some of this was, um, um, they they would also pray for rain. And I thought, we need to be doing this and praying for rain right now. But they, you know, they had just collected their fall harvest, and now they were praying for rain for the next harvest. But um, 
so, th- so they, they burst out singing, and, and while they were singing the words from Psalms 113 all the way to 118, the Levites were playing all their instruments. So you see why this was such a joyous time? And you see what we have to look forward to doing in the Millennial Kingdom? Because we'll be doing all of this. Some of them were playing their lyres and their harps and their, and their cymbals and their trumpets, and it was just a wonderful time. But part of the words that they were singing were, Tremble thou earth at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the God of Jacob, which turned the rock into a standing water, the flint into a fountain of water. You see, some believe that this water um, offering ceremony originated to commemorate when Moses was commanded to smite the rock. Because the people were thirsty, you know, and they were complaining against him, and they wanted to stone him to death, and he was angry. But God spoke to him and said, smite the rock at Mount Horeb. And um, out of it will come water, and that's exactly what he did, except he broke God's picture. You know, that was a no-no. God has little pictures to show us Christ. And you know what Moses did wrong? Do you know why he couldn't go into the promised land? He smote it twice. He ruined God's picture. You see, the rock, Jesus Christ, was only to be smitten one time on the cross. Once for all. Moses ruined that picture when he smote him twice. That's why he couldn't go into the promised land. But anyway, Jesus Christ is that rock. We know that. We're told that in 1 Corinthians. But what came out of that rock? Living water. And you know who the living water represents? God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. We're told that. Look at verse 39 here. John even tells us. It's interesting, you know, because when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, he actually referred to himself as the living water. Now here, he speaks of God the Holy Spirit as the living water. Well, that's not a problem. (laughs) He said, he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You see, once a person has partaken of the living water, and that remember Jesus said in uh, John 6, he said, he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Once a person has realized their own thirst that their own soul is, is lacking and it is not satisfied, and they drink of Jesus Christ, the living water that comes out of him, the rock. Then what happens? Hopefully, if you're in the word, which is also a picture of water, you'll get, just get so filled up and filled up that you, you just become overflowing with that water, right? So out of, out of your person flow, you know, it says out of the belly, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. We're not, suppo- we're, we're not supposed to be like sponges and just take it all in and take it all in. We're supposed to be like sponges that take it in and then are squeezed. And out of, you know, from us flows to other people the rivers of living water. So that's just a, a beautiful picture he gives us there. All right, I am out of time. What I'm going to do is just read the rest of the scripture and then we'll be dismissed. All right. The next section would have been divided opinions. And for that, let me read verses 40 to 44. You know, you have your book so you can read everything I don't have time to talk about. There's a lot of homework this week and I know that'll scare some of you. Just do what you can. Nobody sees your homework but you. A lot of questions and I know it might scare away somebody, but just Just do what you can. All right, look at verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this, said of a truth, this is the prophet. You see, one of the the, um, responses to what he said, his invitation, was that some 
heeded his message. Some said this is the prophet, speaking of Deuteronomy 18, where it says that there will be a prophet like unto Moses. And then they said, this has to be him. This has to be the Messiah. Others said, this is the Christ. So some heeded his message or his invitation to come unto him and drink. And um, then others, look at verse uh, 41, where it says, But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh out of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. You see, some heeded his message. Some actually probably drank of him that day and were saved. Said, This has to be the Christ. This has to be him. Others hindered his message. And this is the way it is today, isn't it? Some people believe... Some people heed the message of the gospel, uh, which is basically thirst, come, drink. You know, you can boil the, the gospel message down to those three verbs. Thirst, come, drink. Some heed that message. Some try to hinder it. And that's what these people were doing. They were mocking and saying, we know that Christ doesn't come out of Galilee. He's from despicable Nazareth. He can't be the Christ because we know that Christ will come from where? Bethlehem. Well, if they had bothered to do a little research, they would have found, of course, that he had been born in Bethlehem and that he was of the lineage of David, both through his father and his mother. No one today could ever claim to be the Messiah. Only Jesus Christ has his lineage all the way back because all the other records were destroyed when the temple was burned in 70 AD. But anyway, and so there's a division. And then some hate the message. Some heed it, some hinder it, some hate it. And that's what we see in verse 44. It says, some of them would have taken him, but again, no man could lay hands on him. All right, then, whatever happened to those temple officers? Well, here they are. They show up. It says in verse 45, then came the officers back to them. Now, they'd already been to arrest Jesus, but guess what? They never dared to even approach him. They stood there and heard what he said, and they go back to the chief priests and Pharisees who sent them, and they say unto them, they ask the temple officers, why have ye not brought him? And the officers answered, and this, you've all heard this expression, never man spake like this man. See what happened with these temple officers? They got kind of convicted about the words of Jesus Christ. He didn't say a whole lot, but he offered them Come and drink. Are you thirsty? Do you think those temple officers were thirsting? Is every unsaved person thirsting and hungering and searching for something to fill that void in? These men heard something that was satisfying. And they came back and they said, How can we arrest such a one? Never have we heard words like this man spake. Now, don't you think that made them a little bit upset, the religious rulers? It did. Look at verse 47. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any, now I love this, oh I love this. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? See what they're doing, they're being sarcastic to these Levite temple officers saying, What? Are you deceived too? And then they say, Have any of we Pharisees believed on him? Or any of we rulers of the people? Guess what? Take a sneak Preview, I mean, a post view back at John chapter 3. Look at John chapter 3, a few chapters back, and look at verse 1. John chapter 3, verse 1. 
There was a man of the who? Pharisees named Nicodemus. Who was he? A ruler of the Jews. Now go back to John 7 in their little question in verse 48. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? And guess who speaks up? A Pharisee and a ruler of the people. Oh, I just wish I could have been there. (laughs) Oh, but first of all, they went on to talk about their opinion of the common people who they didn't have any empathy for. They're supposed to be their pastors, but they don't care about them. They say, but this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. They're speaking about their own people, the the Jews. They say, these people who don't know the law, they're just cursed. They don't know it like we do. We're the elite. We're the mucky mucks who know everything. And then verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, now we are reminded who he was. He was the one who came to Jesus by night, being one of them. And he said, doth our law judge any man before it hear him? Oh, Nikki, I am so glad that you said that. Do you know what that means? He had heard him on that night in John chapter 3, hadn't he? And he'd been thinking about those words he had heard ever since. And finally, instead of coming just by night, he's coming out in the open. And he's saying, does our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? I think Nicodemus is getting it. Faith cometh by Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And then, of course, they have to answer him. You know, if they can't attack the message, they attack the messenger. And they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Of course, they knew he wasn't, but they hated Galileans. They were just uneducated ruffian fishermen. He said, Are are you also Nicodemus of Galilee? Uh, Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. You know what they're saying? He can't be the he can't possibly be the prophet or the Messiah because search the scriptures. There's no prophet that ever comes out of Galilee. Wrong. <laughs> you know who came out of Galilee? Jonah came out of Galilee. Hosea came out of Galilee. Nahum came out of Galilee. They didn't know their scriptures quite as well as they thought they did. But anyway, it ends where it says in every... Obviously, they did not send the temple police back out to get Jesus. And we know because it was not yet his appointed time. And I'm wondering if it's also because they wouldn't go and arrest such a man. But it tells us in conclusion, every man went unto his own house. All the people went back to their little booths. The Sanhedrin, the Jews and the chief priests went back to their homes. Nicodemus went back to his home. Who else was left? Everybody went back to their home. But look at verse 8. One of eight, of chapter eight, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. You see, the foxes have holes, the birds nests have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Everybody went to their home, but he didn't even have a home to go to. He went to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus Christ today offers us the opportunity. It's still the day of grace. He offers us the opportunity to come unto him and drink. May we seek him, Father, while he may yet be found, and may we yield to the Spirit such that our cups runneth over and the rivers of living water gush out of us unto others, our fellow man, causing them, too, to thirst for the only source that truly and eternally satisfies, that one being 
Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us, and we're so thankful for that. Father, thank you for each woman here. Bless her this week. Help her to be salt and light for you and bring us all back safely next week, for we pray in your name. Amen.